All right, Jesse, I'm still fuming about that cowardly murderer that we talked about last week. What's the story this time? When police respond to a domestic disturbance at a very old and potentially very haunted Louisville mansion, they would never have suspected that they would uncover a deadly drug-fueled love triangle, some pretty extreme kinks, and of course, murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jessie Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about haunted hookups, salacious scandals, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Wow, we had so many incredible reviews this week and so many messages about the really cool um, serial killer Valentines that we're sending out with stickers for the reviews and social media mentions. So I have a lot of mail to attend to tomorrow. I literally just got the next batch of Valentines in the mail from our great Etsy creator who did them for us. Her name's Jessie. So we will be sending those out this week. So hopefully they all arrive before your Valentine's Day. I'm sure they will. I think they will too. So, and if you still want one after maybe it's going to be Valentine's Day, they're still cool. So let us know. And thank you guys so much for always continuing to be super duper cool. Okay, Andy, this is such an insane story. I just got into this one and it went deeper and deeper and deeper and got weirder and weirder and weirder. So I think we should just jump right in. And you know, we mostly do straight true crime, but this one has a little, just a little supernatural in it. Love it. It's for my birthday month. It is for your birthday month. Here's a spooky story. Also, I think somebody in one of our reviews commented, I hope that you guys have a super spooky or super scary Valentine's Day episode. This is kind of our Valentine's Day episode because it falls on a Monday. So you're welcome. Here is your spooky, creepy, sex kinky little Valentine. On June 17th, 2010, the police were dispatched on a domestic dispute call. The man calling was 38-year-old Jeffrey Munt, and he was the owner of a sprawling and rundown mansion located at 1435 South 4th Street in Old Louisville, Kentucky. And I know that if you are local, it is pronounced closer to Louisville. I'm probably going to say it more like Louisville, so please forgive me. Old Louisville boasts the largest collection of Victorian mansions in the United States. 30 or 40 years before, many of the stately homes had fallen into disrepair and the neighborhood had gotten a bad rap as a seedy and crime-filled locale. But in 2010, the area was kind of on an upswing. Upwardly mobile young couples were moving into the area to restore the antique mansions to their former glory. 
Despite the influx of new blood and new money, old Louisville still retained a dark reputation, in part because of the very modern crimes that still occurred within its leafy borders, as well as the very old legends and spooky stories that came with certain houses. The mansion the police were called to that balmy June night was almost as famous as the American Horror Story Murder House and maybe contains just as many ghosts. The stately home was built in 1897 and first owned by Richard Robinson, a hardware merchant. He lived there happily for nearly 20 years until his wife fell ill and died in the home. Unable to live without her, the widower moved out and the house became home to a sanitarium in the 1920s and 1930s. One of the head doctors would later lose his medical license for experimenting on his patients, resulting in scores of deaths. Uh, You know, I love this shit. (laughs) Yes, and isn't it like so far very American Horror Story? So this house is huge. It is 9,000 square feet. But Andy, it looks a little bit like the house I lived in in Millerton that was built in 1900, like on the inside. Okay. All, you know, that carved staircase that's got really dark wood, polished. It's very much like that. By 2010, it had fallen into a state of disrepair. But let's keep going with some more of the history. The sanitarium eventually went bankrupt, which will happen to you when they're doing a legal experiments on the patients. And in the 1960s, a woman who had just recently got out of divorce used her divorce settlement to buy the building and turn it into apartments, essentially. So it had been like one major mansion before, then it was a sanitarium, and now it was being cut up into apartment units. Okay. So she was said to not be very involved in what her tenants were doing. And as a result, Some of the questionable people that she rented to did some very interesting things, particularly in the basement of this house. So rumors abounded about these shadowy happenings. And it was said that in the 1970s and 80s, the basement was believed to have hosted secret S&M sex parties, satanic cults, and even once a Vatican official exorcism. What? Yeah. So one of the sources that I use today, my my main source is a really fantastic book. And I'll get into, you know, what I thought about the book later on, because I know you guys all want to just get to the story. But it's called A Dark Room in Glitterball City by David Domine. And one of his friends in the books finds like an official document that said the Vatican certified an exorcism in the building. Oh my God. So the landlady's ownership of the house ended when she was brutally attacked and murdered by one of her very own tenants. Oh my God. So yes, I don't know exactly what happened between the 80s and 2008 when Jeffrey Munt purchased the deteriorating manse. But back then, he had very high hopes of renovating and building a beautiful life within its legendary walls. Now, less than two years later, in 2010, those hopes were dashed and he found himself calling 911 in terror as he claimed that his live-in lover, 38-year-old Joey Bannis, was trying to kill him. He said when he was on the phone, 
that they needed to come quickly because Joey had a hammer and was trying to hammer down the locked bedroom door. Okay, but was it not true? It might be. It might not be. Jessica! So yeah, this is like a horror movie scene. If it is true. It was happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when the police arrived on the scene, they couldn't get into the home. So Jeffrey was still on the 911 call and they got permission to essentially batter in a side entrance. So they did so and they entered the murky dark house with their guns drawn. As they did this, a home alarm went off. So there's this ear splitting alarm going on. They don't know what to expect. They're expecting a crazed man with a hammer. Yeah. And at that point, Joey Bannis, the one who was supposedly wielding the hammer, came running down the staircase and it seemed like he was trying to escape. Okay. So they immediately put him on the ground, you know, asked him to get on the ground and they found meth and counterfeit money on him. Okay. So immediately they're like, okay, something is very off here. We're going to take you into the station, right? So while he was being arrested and, you know, in the car and going to custody, he demanded to speak to homicide detectives. Now, this is just a domestic disturbance as well as now, you know, they're like, maybe it's a drug charge, et cetera. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because Joey had a dark secret. He knew of one other poor soul who had met their end inside the haunted mansion. That person had died in the house only six months earlier. And Joey said that he could take the police to where the body was buried and tell them who was responsible for the horrific murder. Detectives would soon discover the name of the person in the makeshift grave, but so many other questions would linger. How did they get there? Why were they killed? And who was the killer? Faced with lie after lie from the only eyewitnesses, detectives would have to wade into a seedy tale of tawdry group sex, rampant drug use, dangerous fantasies, counterfeit money operations, and even more bizarre twists before arrests would be made. Get comfortable and pour yourself a nice Kentucky bourbon because this case is gonna get weird. And Andy, I mean, really weird. Like big warning guys for sexual content as far as descriptions of various sex acts and kinks go. I will remain as surface level as humanely possible, but maybe don't let the kids hear this one, okay? Maybe keep this in your earbuds. Yeah. (laughs) So like I said, A Dark Room in Glitterball City by David Domine. I also watched an After the First 48 two-parter from season six about this case. you watch that without me? (laughs) I'm so sorry. Andy's been at a trade show all weekend, so she's coming off a very, very long travel and work weekend. So I'm glad I have a very interesting story to keep you awake this week. Yeah, you got me. I'm hooked. I'm ready. Can you like start, please? Yes. Okay. One last source (laughs) is there's also a crime salad episode about this. 
which we love. We love Ashley and Ricky. So thank you guys so much. And if you're looking at this and saying, wow, this is a long episode, I think that they managed to cover it in 25 minutes. So (laughs) if you're interested in the same story, but only in the 25 minute version, go on over to Crime Salad. Also, it's always so fun to see how other people tell the story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I actually love that they're like, their style is different from ours. I think it, everybody likes, you know, different styles and I loved listening to it. So crime salad, guys. All right, let's get into it. So let's start with Jeffrey, the homeowner who called 911 on his partner. Jeffrey was born in 1972 and raised in Louisville. He was a governor's scholar at Atherton High School, where he had the reputation of a smart and gifted athlete. Jeffrey was apparently an amazing swimmer, which makes sense. He's like a very, looks like a tall, thin man, very streamlined. He's got a swimmer's body. Okay. He received a scholarship to University of Indiana, where he studied computer science. He graduated as a Phi Beta Kappa, which is an elite honor society. And he went on to get his master's at Northwestern University, which is in the suburbs of Chicago. Yeah. And also where Nathaniel Nathaniel went. So he stayed at Northwestern and was given a job modernizing the university's electronic financial records, eventually becoming the school's director of finance. Jeffrey went on to work as a vice president of a Florida-based IT firm before deciding that he wanted to return to his roots and move back to his hometown in Louisville, Kentucky. In 2008, he took a position with the University of Louisville and bought the Fixer Upper Mansion with the dark past just a little after President Obama's first election victory that November. That's why I think he had, you know, the portends of great things. It was like 2008, Obama was running on hope. He had hope for this mansion, you know? I guess he had also just left a bad relationship in Chicago too. So this was really a time for new beginnings. He was excited to renovate this place. He wanted to find a new partner. Yeah. Yes. So in order to find that new partner, he began to go on various dating websites like we all do. And he ended up meeting a guy named Joseph Joey Bannis on a site called Adam for Adam, which is kind of like a gay hookup site, it sounded like. So they met in like late September, early October of 2009. On the surface, they did seem like an odd couple, like just looking at them, because Jeffrey was very, you know, buttoned up, well-educated. He made a great living as a tech guy. They said he made like a quarter million dollars a year. Wow. And Joey was just like absolutely covered with tattoos. He sported a multicolored mohawk. He had once... (sighs) Follow the Grateful Dead. And now he was like a bartender and a former gay club owner. And most of the time when he was like working as a bartender, he was like barely wearing clothes, you know? So it just like aesthetically, they looked very different, you know? Yeah, but we all know that means shit. Exactly. Joey had been raised by his well-respected plastic surgeon father and mother in an upper middle class upbringing, but he had been plagued with substance abuse issues that resulted in a lot of drug-related arrests and plenty of jail time in his young life. Whoa, okay. Yeah, so he came from a very well-to-do family, but unfortunately his substance abuse issues caused him to make some very poor decisions And by the time that Joey connected with Jeffrey online, he had actually only been out of his last prison stint for six weeks. Whoa. 
Okay. Yep. Despite the obvious differences, the couple actually had a lot in common. Like you said, you know, you can't really Doesn't judge matter. a book by its cover. Yep. In spite of Joey's rocky path in life, he was very intelligent and super sharp. The men bonded over a shared intellect as well as a shared interest in meth use and kinky sex. Oh, no. No. So later, you know, we're going to get into everything that happens later. But later, Jeffrey is going to try to claim that he never used drugs until after he met and started dating Joey Bannis. Like, Joey is the bad influence here. Influence, yeah. Yep. But his dating profile indicated his interest in party and play, PNP, which from what I learned from the David Domine book, usually means meth and sex. Okay, so it's specific to meth. Yes. I, it, it Basically, it can be drug use in general, but they say in, in this community and that and the way that the dating profile talked about things, it is generally understood to be meth use. Okay. Um, his profile was named Rubber Jace. I don't know if it was like a middle name or something, but his nickname was Jace. So his name's Jeffrey Munt, but he sometimes goes by Jace. And it also listed a lot of very quirky sexual interests. So this is where the warning comes in, y'all. A defense attorney later on in this case would say that he learned more about different sexual fetishes than he would have ever liked to know in his entire life while preparing for this trial. And I gotta tell you guys, we are on like episode 84, I think this is. What is this one? 85. Yeah, we're on episode 85 of a largely sexually explicit love triangle related murder podcast. So, you know, I've heard a thing or two, you know, I learned things this episode that I never even knew were possible or things. That makes me really happy. <laughs> Man. Learn something every day. And also, I want to be clear, if this is your first listen to Love Murder, I have to say, first of all, welcome. Thank you for listening to us. And thank you for getting so far into this podcast. I <laughs> am about to get very sexually explicit. And I'm sure in our, our usually we are not kink shamers, but I'm sure in joking about these things, it'll come across that way. We're not usually that way. And we're usually not so jokey, but there's only so many ways you can deal with bizarre sexual fetishes. So please give us, give us a chance here. No training wheels on this episode. Okay, so this is literal quotes from his dating profile. He was interested in rubber, 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 PVC, leather, bondage, all types, S&M, water sports. Do you know what that is? I would assume something with cum. It's like urine play. Oh, like peeing. Okay. It's peeing. <laughs> That's not as fun in my opinion. No. But. <laughs> no. <laughs> sex toys, flogging, group sex, chastity, barebacking, CBT, and uh, he does not mean cognitive behavioral therapy, and get ready for this, mummification. So if you're like me and you have no idea what some of those terms mean, welcome to a new segment I created called Name That Kink with your host, Jessie Bray. Oh, I thought you were going to go with Jessica. Jessica Ann Prey, which is not my middle name. And Andy always calls me Jessica Ann. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give you Three multiple choice questions, and you have to guess the correct kinky act. 
Okay, I love this. I love this. <laughs> Number one, chastity. Okay, this seems pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> Is it A, not having sex until marriage? B, being prevented from ejaculating? Or C, wearing a medieval chastity belt and creating a fun scavenger hunt for your partner to find the key and unlock you? Two. It is two. You are correct. <laughs> Apparently, there are also certain sexual devices that you can put on your penis and scrotum yeah. that yeah. prevent you from ejaculating. So I guess they kind of go together. Yes. Chastity. Okay. Question number two. So what does CBT stand for? Is it A, careful boner tickling? B, cat ball toy play where one partner acts like a cat and the other like a ball of yarn? Or, (laughs) meow. Or C, cock and ball torture? Cock and ball torture, C. Yes, you're really good at this game, Andy. (laughs) You're like frighteningly good at this game. Yes, Jeffrey enjoyed having his penis and testicles manhandled aggressively, even hit. Last one. Thank you guys for indulging this segment. Mummification. Is it A, when you accidentally awaken an ancient Egyptian curse (laughs) and are forced to be the sex slave of a creepy, angry mummy like the one from The Cinematic Treasure starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz? B, when you are fully covered or contained in rubber or another constraining environment or material and it's advanced form of bondage, apparently. Or C, when you're completely naked except for three rolls of toilet paper wrapped around your body and you pretend to be a mummy. B. <laughs> yes, you are three <laughs> out of three in the kink games here, Andrea. Did you expect that? <laughs> I did, actually. I just wanted the, the listeners to know what a f- secret freak you are. <laughs> No, no, I did actually. I figured you'd pick up on it. (laughs) I mean, I'm like, wish it was the Brendan Fraser one, but it wasn't. And I wish it was the cat and ball play too. (laughs) So yes, that one, the cat and ball play was actually for you. I did that one special. Thanks. So yes, of course it is for you and Quincy. That's really weird. Uh, Yes. So B, Jeffrey was very much into being deprived like of his senses. So he liked sensory deprivation. He liked breath control. He said that he liked to be completely encased in rubber, like those suits where you're completely zipped up, you know, no holes. Yeah. What's that called? A gimp suit? Yes. See, Mm, I knew that one. I think I only know that one from Pulp Fiction though. Exactly. You're so mainstream. (laughs) I'm so vanilla in my sexual practices. So he was very interested in being smothered to a point, of course. So Joey, his lover, must have known all of this because it was on his profile on the same site that they connected on. But he did say that he was still taken aback when he went to Jeffrey's creepy haunted mansion for their first date and Jeffrey answered the door in a full rubber suit. How American Horror Story is this, though? Well, not if you're like into it, though. 
You know, it's got we've got the murder house with the like creepy past with like a medical past. You've got people dying in the house. You've got seemingly people possessed potentially in the house. And then you have a guy who loves rubber. Okay, so in Jeffrey's defense, I guess it was close to Halloween. So he thought it was cute, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, despite this first impression, the two hit it off and the love affair moved extremely quickly with Joey moving in only a few weeks after their first date. And they did all of the normal happy couple things that couples do. They worked on home projects together. They went out to eat. They met each other's parents. But they also engaged in some very dark sexual fantasies. The committed couple kept profiles on hookup sites and apparently enjoyed drug-fueled orgies and violent role-playing. Whatever keeps the spark alive, I guess. (laughs) In April of 2010, it seemed that methy fantasies had turned into real-life criminal behavior when Jeff and Joey were arrested in Chicago. So the couple had been staying at a Hyatt Regency when Jeffrey passed a damp $100 bill to the doorman and asked him to break it into smaller bills. The doorman suspected- Why was it damp? I do not know, but I think that it had something to do with the doorman realizing that it was counterfeit. Like he was like, this is weird that it's damp. With the water play. Ew, 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 ew. Okay, my mind had not gone there, but now it has, thank you. So yes, I think that something about the $100 bill tipped him off, maybe in no small part because it was damp. I don't want anyone, any stranger handing me anything that's damp. No, I don't want any stranger handing me anything ever. I barely want someone I love to hand me something damp. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've handed you some damp things. (laughs) Sure. Alden does it like eight times a day and I never know what it is. So they immediately were, you know, questioning the validity of this $100 bill. So the doorman was like, hold on, let me go to the the counter and get it for you, you know, the check-in desk. And he immediately took it to his manager. And the manager is like, oh yeah, this is counterfeit. And he called the police. So when the police arrived, they searched Jeff and Joey's room. So they also found a gun on Joey, like right from the get-go. He was, he had an illegal firearm on his person. So they're like, okay, we got counterfeit bills. We got an illegal firearm on this guy. We're going to arrest both of them and we're going to search that hotel room. When they searched the hotel room, the Chicago PD found $55,000 in counterfeit bills. A clear liquid substance that turned out to be GHB, a popular date rape drug, fake IDs for both men, and several handguns. So... I have no idea what they were planning to do with all of this stuff. There was a rumor that potentially they were going to try to rob a bank that came up later on, but they never said, so we never know what the end goal of this stash of bizarre criminal possession. On GHB though? Like that doesn't sound like- Or they were trying to drug somebody else. Okay. In any case, Jeff Munt was charged with theft and possession of a fake ID, while Joey, who I guess was trying to take more of the blame- was charged with aggravated unlawful use of a weapon, possession of a fake ID, misdemeanor theft, possession of a controlled substance, possession of drug paraphernalia, and possession of a weapon without the proper firearm owner's ID card. When they were arraigned in Cook County, bail was set for Jeffrey at $50,000 and Joey's was set at $200,000. 
the discrepancy between the bail amounts was likely because A, Joey had tried to take all the blame, but also he already had a rap sheet. So he had priors. So of course they're taking it a little bit more seriously. The men were able to pay 10% of the total bail. So just about $25,000 and they were allowed to return home to Kentucky. Despite this close call, both men would be arrested less than two months later on the fateful night that Jeffrey Munt claimed that Joey was trying to hammer down his bedroom door to kill him. And Joey told the detectives that there was a dead body buried in the house's basement. Hey, good luck, guys. No. And this is where the he said, he said started. Well, Jeffrey claimed he was genuinely scared for his life following an argument and attack by Joey. Joey claimed that Jeffrey was setting him up and that he had actually been asleep at the time that Jeffrey made the 911 call. And why he had run down the stairs is because he was surprised by the alarm and he thought somebody was breaking in. So that's his story. So at this point, while they're trying to interview Joey and make sense of what is going on here, he believed that Jeffrey had said that Joey was a murderer and he had killed somebody who was buried in their basement. So there was some back and forth. I couldn't really find out. Like, it sounded like by all accounts, Joey was the one to bring it up, but it sounded like he thought that Jeffrey brought it up. And that's why he was kind of doing it retroactively bringing up this dead body that was in the basement, you know? Like he was like, don't let him tell you that I killed him because I'm going to tell you he killed him, you know? Covering his bases. So Joey wanted to make it clear to the officers that there was indeed a murderer in the house, but it was definitely Jeffrey. When Joey began to spill his guts to Detective John Lesher, which by the way, this is on the after the first 48 because these detectives were already participating with the first 48. So they were following them to this call and to everything. So it's all on the A&E show, guys. Joey says that the couple had been involved with a meth dealer named Jamie Carroll. So we've got Joey, Jeffrey, and Jamie. It's going to get confusing. So Andy, if you're ever like confused about who's doing what or saying what, just stop me and I'll, I'll try to make it clear. So Joey said that he had met Jamie on the same dating site that he had met Jeff, like around roughly the same time. And the two had become friendly. After he got together seriously with Jeff, the threesome had gotten together for meth and sex a couple times. Joey claimed that one night, six months before, so six months before the domestic dispute call, they had been hooking up together when they ran out of drugs. Jamie went back to the hotel that he had been staying at to get more meth. And Joey said that Jeff said maybe they should kill and rob Jamie when he returned. Yeah. Joey said that he thought that Jeff was like high or joking. He did not think he was serious, even a little. When Jamie returned, they all did more math. And then Joey said that he watched some porn while Jeff and Jamie fooled around in bed. All of a sudden, he said blood was everywhere and Jamie was screaming. Jeffrey Munt had stabbed Jamie and then shot him with a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver. 
Joey said that he was in a state of shock. And then Jeffrey told him that he would kill him. He would kill Joey and Joey's family if he didn't help him cover up the murder. Joey said when he was in police custody, I wasn't able to tell anybody in the beginning because I was scared for myself, scared for my family. And I was also in love with this guy. But over the past seven or eight months, I no longer love him. And somebody's just got to know the truth. I want freedom from this person. Jace, which was Jeffrey's nickname, has basically held me prisoner for a long, long time. And it's just been one thing after another. And I'm not at all interested in being in a relationship with him now, nor being threatened or scared anymore. So at first, the detectives were completely in disbelief. They thought that this guy was an ex-con who was just trying to avoid more prison time by telling them some bullshit, right? Which they probably experienced quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. But when they looked up Jamie Carroll, they discovered that while he had not been officially reported missing, he did have some bench warrants out for his arrest after he had failed to report to court. Joey explained that no one had been looking for Jamie because he was supposed to go to prison on drug charges only a day or two after the murder. So everyone who loved him knew that he was supposed to go to prison. So they just assumed they hadn't heard from him because he was serving his time. So sad. It's so sad. And also, I guess that they also pulled up the website, Adam for Adam, and his profile was there, just like Joey had described. And he positively identified him. Yeah. So who is Jamie Carroll? Jamie was 37 years old. He was born in rural eastern Kentucky, where he had a troubled childhood plagued by domestic violence and a history of family substance abuse issues. Despite the rough upbringing, his mother described him as her sunshine, who would give the shirt off his back for a stranger. A high school friend described him as confident and sweet. And she mentioned that he was out as gay in high school, which, you know, he's 37 in 2010. So he was, you know, it still is a time that people were not out, especially in rural Kentucky. Yeah. But she said that there was something about the way he carried himself and his confidence and how likable he was that she didn't really remember him even getting bullied that much. That was like what the force of his personality was. That's incredible. Yeah. And Jamie had been drawn to doing hair and makeup and he became a hairstylist. Later on, he performed in drag as Ronica Reed pageant queen. And she was apparently really, really, really good at it. She even won Miss Gay Pride West Virginia one year. Love. Get it, girl. Unfortunately, Jamie was very addicted to meth and other substances that would cause him to end up losing jobs, friends, and family, dealing drugs, and going off the radar for long periods of time, and of course, getting into trouble with the law. Because this was his usual MO, and because he was supposed to be in prison, that's why many people didn't even realize he was missing. Sadly, he had told one friend that he looked forward to getting clean in prison and starting a fresh drug-free life when he got out. So I think this like romp with Jeffrey and Joey was supposed to be a last hurrah before he went to prison. Yeah, that's so sad. It's so sad that he would never get the chance to turn his life around. After the detectives were able to confirm that the Chicago PD had confiscated the murder weapon following their arrest at the Hyatt... They decided to bring in Jeffrey Munt for questioning and search the basement of the haunted house to find out once and for all if Joey's crazy story was indeed true. 
So while one detective started Jeff's interrogation, Detective Lesher went into the basement, followed by the first 48 cameras. There, they did find a room off of the main basement that had a hard dirt floor rather than cement that was on most of the other floor. And this is exactly what Joey had described. He had even drawn a map to where this body was buried. Whoa. And I guess that this side room had been used in the original intent as a wine cellar. So there was some disturbed earth and it seemed pretty clear that something had been buried there recently. So that's exactly where they began digging. And they just kept digging and digging. And about five feet down, they discovered a 50-gallon Rubbermaid container. And as they were trying to, you know, dig this big container out, apparently a shovel hit the lid and unsealed one of the corners of the bin. And it let out an absolutely disgusting smell. It is the odor, familiar to homicide detectives, the rotten smell of a human body decomposing. They opened it up and lo and behold, there was Jamie Carroll's murdered and mangled body six months dead. Andy, I gotta tell you, sometimes adulting is bullshit. It's an onslaught of WTFs at least 20 times a day. Sometimes we just need a break from the day-to-day drab, maybe a couple of cuss words, a middle finger or two, or a few great laughs, whatever it takes to put adulting in timeout. Seriously, life is so much easier with a great sense of humor, and no one ever said it had to be rated PG. Smart Ass and Sass is the subscription box meant for unashamed, mouthy mofos. Get your fix of brazen humor each month. Smartass and Sass items are curated and personally tested by the SNS team, a group of really mouthy mofos who want you to get a good laugh in your day. SNS partners with some of the best small businesses to bring you trendy and snarky items each month. Each box comes with a snarky shirt and seven to nine unique items valued at $90 for only $49.95. The SNS box is a perfect gift for that person in your life who has just absolutely had it up to here and needs some mental relief. 100%. And it's also just a great little monthly delivery of self-care for those of us who need to throw up our hands and laugh every once in a while. Truly, my no one cares socks are now a treasured possession. Use code LOVEMURDER for 10% off first-time subscription orders. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Not valid on shop orders. And follow Smartass and Sass on social media for your daily dose of attitude. Gaps in the diet shouldn't be ignored. Over 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D in their diets. And 95% are not getting their recommended daily intake of key omega-3s. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin was formulated by exhaustive research to help fill nutrient gaps in the diets of women ages 18 and up. It is formulated with nutrients to help support brain health, bone health, blood health, and provide antioxidant support. But Ritual didn't stop there. They invested in a gold standard university-led clinical trial to prove the impact of Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin. The results, Essential for Women 18 Plus, was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in 12 weeks. The clinical study was published in a leading scientific journal, Frontiers in Nutrition, 
A published clinical study is a big deal and a serious commitment to a first-of-its-kind standard in the industry. Ritual is committed to third-party testing from USP and the non-GMO project, traceable and vegan-friendly ingredients, and always clear communication. No shady stuff. Andy and I both first tried Ritual during our pregnancies, and we absolutely fell in love with the quality of the products, the convenience. Oh my gosh. Just having it mailed to you every month is so easy. And the service, as well as the company's commitment to constant improvement. Right now, Ritual is offering our Love Murder listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash lovemurder and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com slash lovemurder. So concurrently at the same time, Jeff Munt is getting questioned and he was denying everything. He was like, I don't know who Jamie is. I don't know what Joey's talking about. I don't know about any murder in the house. He said that he didn't know that a body was allegedly buried in the basement of the home he owned. And so when he full dummied up and he looks like a soccer dad. I mean, when you're watching the first 48, he's wearing like a t-shirt, a baseball cap. He looks like, you know, your average suburban dad, you know? So at first they're kind of believing him and he put on a great performance. They have it on the first 48. You guys can watch it. When they tell him that they did indeed find a body in his basement, he's like, you found a body in my house there's a dead body in my house like he is acting so upset it's so authentic seeming that really the detectives at first kind of believe him they're like okay well he's got this ex-con boyfriend and he's like an upstanding guy with a you know two hundred fifty thousand dollar job he owns his own home you know like maybe he just got pulled into this weirdness because of his his boyfriend you know So they ask him that, like, to prove his story by taking a polygraph. And he agrees. So he also apparently had been very easy to work with. He had been very agreeable with the police. So they're like, okay, great. He's going to, you know, take a lie detector test. It's going to be very clear that this was Joey. He gets strapped into the polygraph. And, like, the guy who's about to give him the test is like, okay, you know, you got to, I'm going to ask you some questions. And if you don't tell me the same story that you told the detectives, it's going to be pretty obvious. And at that point, he goes, you know what? Mm, I'm going to tell you the truth now. We can skip this whole thing. I was lying before. Stop it. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, Jeffrey knows who Jamie Carroll is, and he knows about the murder. And Jeff's story is nearly identical to Joey's, except for one major detail. That Joey killed him. Yep, bingo. Meth is a crazy drug. Uh-huh. So yeah, they're both trying to pin the murder on one another, as well as, of course, mitigate their own involvement. Doesn't it already look bad, though, that he, like, half lied the first oh, time? Oh, it looks very bad. This is, yeah. the watching him on the first 48 might have convinced me more of his guilt than anything. Seeing how convincingly he lied. Yep, yeah. You know, and acted and then he was like, oh, but I do know that there's a body, but it wasn't me. Uh-huh, exactly. And that's what makes me somewhat doubt the 911 call. But that's also really, really hard because I listened to the 911 call. That's also on the first 48. And it's very compelling. I mean, he sounds terrified. He sounds 
absolutely terrified. I mean, this is not to say Joey is not a good guy. So he absolutely could be trying to break into the bedroom. But I don't know. I just don't trust Jeffrey either, you know? So Jeff said that after Joey killed Jamie, he was horrified, but Joey threatened to kill his family and his cats if he didn't help him. The cats, not the cats. Not the cats. He said Joey gave him some GHB, the date rape drug, to calm him down and then made him dig the hole in the basement, which took hours, if not a couple days. He said that while he was doing it, Joey was very mean to him and was like berating him about how weak he was and how he couldn't even dig the hole and how he was going to have to like dig a second hole for his own grave, essentially. So he says that was all going on. He said that while he was doing this, Joey cleaned up the blood and they ended up then the next day or the day after going to a hardware store where they purchased the 50 gallon Rubbermaid bin, as well as some rubber foam and lime. By the time the hole was dug and the materials were purchased, Jamie's body was already in rigor. So in order to get him to fit in the Rubbermaid bin, they had to smash his knees and parts of his body with a sledgehammer to make him fit. God. Who told the story? Jeffrey? Jeffrey is telling the story. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they took the lime, they poured it all over his body to help reduce the stench. I guess Jeffrey said that he had seen the lime trick on some other show. So it was his idea. Everyone's an expert. So they took the lime, they poured it all over his body to help reduce the stench, and then they sealed the bin using the foam sealant, and then they duct taped the whole thing closed before they put it in the hole and buried it in the basement. When Jamie's autopsy was conducted, the bin weighed 270 pounds, of which Jamie's slim body constituted only 128 of those pounds. What were the other? It was lime. It was the lime. Really? Whoa. That's Mm -hmm. a lot. His body was already concretized. I might be pronouncing this wrong, guys, but it was essentially the lime makes everything, all of the living stuff, like kind of like concrete, as it was described to me. And he was found in a crouching position in the bin. And he was hogtied to sexual... Yeah, so he's hogtied, which is interesting because I have a theory about this, which we'll get into at the very end of the show about what I think really happened. So they said he was hogtied in a crouching position. Obviously, his his knees and some other joints had been bashed by the sledgehammer. And two sexual devices were found on his body. He had a cock ring on and then some sort of penile scrotal harness. So the autopsy also showed that Jamie had officially died, not from the gunshot wound that was to his cheek, but from the three upwards stab wounds to his neck. So we've got a body and two very likely murderers with similar stories. So who do they believe and who would you believe? I would put both of them in jail. Exactly. So the detectives totally believe that they were both in on it and who actually did the stabbing seemed immaterial to them, which I agree with. It it totally is, yeah. Yeah, their theory is that they decided, hopped up on drugs to kill Jamie and rob him of his stash and his cash because they knew he was supposed to go to prison and they thought no one would miss him. 
Yeah, it doesn't matter who came up with the idea when they were on fucking high on meth. You know, they're yeah. both guilty. They both participated in it. They both did the cover up and they lived together for six months after. Later on, the police would find like text messages of them like lovingly referring to each other. You know, they posed in front of the Christmas tree for Christmas. They did not appear terrified, you know. So the prosecutors decided that they were going to try both men for the murder and they would try Joey first as he seemed like an easier conviction with his prior record and spotty history. Okay, that's kind of fucked up, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, they essentially say they have to go for the winnable case first. Once they have one conviction, it's much easier to get the second conviction. Second, okay, okay. Yeah, I understand. So it's unfair, but Joey was absolutely more of the low-hanging fruit here. So Jeff's trial would be held a couple months after Joey's and he struck a deal with the state that he would testify against Joey in exchange for the death penalty getting taken off the table when it was his turn. So Joey's trial started February of 2013 and the prosecution argued basically what I've already talked to you guys about, what they think happened and that both guys did it together. They said, in essence, Three men walked into the bedroom to have drug-fueled sex and only two men walked out and both of those men were guilty of murder. The evidence would show that Joey absolutely participated in the murder of Jamie Carroll. Joey's defense was, of course, that Jeffrey did it and they said that he did it for two reasons. One was that despite how he appeared on the surface, Jeffrey Munt had perverse and violent fantasies. And two, he was jealous of how close Jamie and Joey were getting. Joey's attorneys said that it would make no sense for Joey to tell the police everything if he believed it would land him in prison for life or worse, executed, because at this point, the death penalty is on the table. No one was missing Jamie. There was no reason for Joey to insist on talking to a homicide detective and spill the beans. And he was extremely insistent, like, I need to talk to a homicide detective. I need to tell you guys something. They went on to point out that while Jeffrey Munn's story had changed several times and he had been caught in lies, Joey's story had remained the same for the entire time. Jeffrey was, of course, the star witness against his former lover, and he contended that Joey's attack on Jamie had occurred while they were all in bed together high on drugs. And in the confusion, Jeff had initially believed that it was some bizarre role play. He did admit to the fact that they had had some like violent killer type sex talk conversations previously while they were having sex. So he thought, this was maybe some joke or role play. Regarding the drug use, Jeffrey said that meth was sexually liberating. Thus, often they used it while they were having sex or group sex. Joey's defense attorney went deep on Jeffrey's kinks, which is why I knew so much about what was on his hookup profile and what he liked to my own detriment and now all of yours. They also hammered him and the detectives on the stand about months' repeated lies. The defense also produced a jailhouse snitch as a witness who claimed that Jeffrey had discussed how Joey had blown the cover on the murder and, quote, fucked up the whole plan. The former cellmate of Jeffrey's testified that Jeff had some jealousy regarding Jamie and had told him that he did not feel bad about killing Jamie because Jamie had been HIV positive. Um, what? 
Mm-hmm. He also claimed that killing Jamie had been sexually arousing for him. Now, we have to take this witness's credibility with a grain of salt because it is, you know, we've talked about this every so often, the type of jailhouse snitch that likes to, you know, go to the authorities and is like, hey, I've got a list of like 10 people I can snitch on if you guys help me get a deal. So I guess this, it sounds like this was one of those cases. So I'm not saying at all that he was lying. I just, we have to take it with a grain of salt here. So Joey didn't testify on his own behalf. And it was later implied that the reason he did not testify was because the prosecution had some video evidence that if he had testified, they could have entered into evidence that was very damning for Joey. In closing, the defense argued that Jeffrey was the one with the dark fantasies, the murder was committed using a gun licensed to Jeffrey, and that Jamie's body had been discovered in a house that belonged to Jeffrey, not Joey. They claimed that where Joey went wrong was helping Jeffrey cover up the crime. They were essentially like, um, he had been brought up on like 10 charges and one of them was evidence tampering. And his attorney was like, you should 100% find him guilty of evidence tampering. We're not going to pretend that he didn't do that. But he did not kill that man. And his conscience weighed on him so much that six months later, he ended up confessing all to the police. And they also suggested that the fight that had occurred that night that resulted in Jeffrey later on calling the police had been because Joey wanted to tell the police what was going on. So essentially they said like they had been fighting about whether or not they should come clean and admit the murder. And then Joey had like gone to sleep and Jeffrey had decided to set him up for the murder. That is kind of what they're implying. The prosecution maintained, yep, they're right. Jeffrey is a bad guy, but so is Joey. They did it together. They covered it up together. They celebrated Christmas. They posed together. They texted each other. They saw each other's parents. No one was coerced. They're both shitbags who deserve to go to prison for life for murdering this guy. Yes. Because the defense had all been like, Jeffrey's so bad. It wasn't Joey. And the prosecution's like, they're both bad. Guys, we're not saying that Jeffrey's not bad. <laughs> we're saying they're both bad. After only a few hours of deliberation, the jury found Joey guilty on eight out of 10 charges against him, including murder. Oh my God. Yeah. He was also charged with robbery in the first degree, tampering with evidence, illegal possession of a controlled substance, possession of drug paraphernalia, and three counts of forged instruments, which I think has something to do with the counterfeit money. Before sentencing, the prosecutors cut the same deal with Joey. If he testified against Jeffrey during Jeffrey's trial, they would take the death penalty off the table for him. He took the deal and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. Author David Domine interviewed one of the jurors after the trial was over and found that the jury believed that the two men were 100% in league together in committing the murder, Though David was surprised at how credible the juror thought Jeffrey was. The juror also said that they had talked to the prosecutors who had said Joey Bannis had routinely screamed at his attorneys and was one of the most difficult defendants slash witnesses that they had ever had to work with. She also said that apparently like 
Joey's story had been like they weren't all engaging in sex. Like they had been in the bed together, but they weren't having sex while he was like watching porn in another room and stuff. And she thought that the fact that Jamie had these sexual apparatuses on his body was proof that Joey was lying about what was happening. That's what she thought, which is where I found out in the book, they talk about how people can wear cock rings without being engaged in actual sex in that moment. Yeah. So two months later, it was Jeffrey's turn. And the prosecution's story hadn't really changed. This time, of course, they focused on Jeffrey's lie in the opening statement, his changing story, as well as the claim that Joey had made him dig his own grave. Like he, I guess at some point, Jeffrey had said like he he was forced to dig his own grave, which is why he hadn't come forward. But when they were down in the basement, they were like, wait, there's not another area that's disturbed down here. So I can prove that you were lying about that. Yeah. So Joey's defense had been 100% to attack Jeffrey's character and really try to focus the attention on how Jeffrey wasn't who he pretended to be. And this was because, of course, they couldn't really say anything nice about Joey. He was a former meth dealer who had been in and out of prison. So focusing everything on Jeff was the right defense for Joey. But Jeffrey's defense was all about how he was this smart stand-up guy with a great job that paid him a shit ton a year and that he had never had so much as a speeding ticket until he met Joey Bannis. And in fact, how could the prosecution's theory that Jeffrey intended to rob Jamie be a motive for the murder? This guy made a quarter million dollars a year. He's going to risk life in prison to get 700 bucks and some meth from this guy. They basically said that Jeffrey was a victim of Joey's as well, that Joey was a psychopath with six felonies to his name, only six weeks out of prison when he attached himself to a naive good guy. Jeffrey had been genuinely terrified the night of the 911 call, they said. And if Jamie's body hadn't been found, the defense argued that there would have likely been two bodies buried in that basement, Jamie's and Jeffrey's. The defense claimed that the fight the night of the 911 call was about how Jeffrey wanted to tell the police about the murder and Joey attacked him to keep him quiet. Which, side note, does not fit with the evidence because if that was true, why would he lie about not knowing anything about Jamie when he first went in? If he really wanted to tell the police the truth, you know? They also presented some evidence from a private journal of Joey's that showed a sort of to-do list when he got out of prison. One of those to-dos was, quote, review online profiles of potential marks, determine city based on likely profiles, try to go after specific targets. Keep in mind to be on the lookout for the next great proxy, Mark, coordinator, etc. So this was written in one of Joey's journals in his own hand at the time that he was about to get out of prison. So they were basically suggesting that Jeffrey, whom he met only six weeks later, was Joey's mark. The biggest piece of new evidence from the prosecution was a videotape featuring Joey and Jeffrey in a hotel room. This is presumably what Joey's attorneys did not want entered into evidence at his trial. It's okay. so weird. It's so weird. They play parts of it in the first 48. And it's very weird because it is Joey talking, but he's reading from a script. So he's reading something that maybe he wrote, maybe Jeff wrote. 
but he's saying it's all his words. And in like Joey is like sitting at a desk, it looks like, and behind him, Jeffrey is on a bed. When the camera's on him, he is reading and he says, this is to any concerned persons regarding my death. My name is Joseph Richard Vannis. Most know me as Joey. I am recording my death for the purpose of informing all informed or all concerned of my own willful suicide and the complete non-involvement and culpability of anyone else. Specifically, my boyfriend, lover, life partner, and friend, Jeffrey Stephen Munt. Yeah, so his middle name's not Jace. Hmm. Notice that he is sitting or lying on the bed near me, and it's only because I have a gun pointed at him. At this point in the video, he holds up a gun, a handgun. The gun is right here, and he is right there. The camera pans to Jeffrey Munt lying prone on the bed, and then the pistol is raised so it can be seen pointing at Jeffrey. I have threatened him to the point of breaking. He clears his throat and sighs. I'm scared that he will try to intercede because I know that he loves me. He sighs again. And I don't want to be found for this to be stopped. Then there's an inaudible sentence. I'm also here to state that any animal property belonging to myself, as well as any funds forwarded to my estate or through my part in the lawsuit involving the club, go to Jace. I specifically name him. I'm in love with him and I consider him my lifelong partner and it is my will that he be the beneficiary. I am holding him hostage because I have failed him and hurt him and done terrible things, which I can never recover him from. This includes killing, long pause, someone who, another long pause. This includes killing someone. I apologize to everyone I've hurt, most especially my family. I have no one to blame for my incapability to cope with the world and my failure except for myself. I was so afraid to face my life that I often blamed others for my own faults, both through this video or for everything from now to my death, and I will leave quietly. I am sorry for any pain that this causes. Where did they get that video? It was when they searched their home. They had it. Okay. Wow. That's... Unfortunate for him. It is very unfortunate. And I'm surprised they couldn't get this into evidence in Joey's trial. I'm guessing it's because maybe he's testifying in this. So they would, they need a defense attorney to be able to question him or, you know, and that's why he didn't testify because then he was opening himself up to it. But yeah, it's really interesting. And David Domine in the book points out that it was an interesting play for the prosecution to play this during Jeffrey Munt's trial because it pretty much sounds like Joey is saying he did the murder, you know? Yep. So I didn't, I didn't ever figure out or get a clear answer on why they played this when they're trying to convict Jeffrey, not Joey, when it's Joey saying that he was the one who killed somebody. Maybe it was just like along with they did it together, you know? In any case, they showed a couple more videos that were terrible. Sounds terrible. No. Over the objections of the defense, the prosecution literally played a sex tape of the two men fornicating. Why? Literally, the courtroom had to just watch these two guys have sex. Well, the reason the prosecution had played it was because the sex tape took place after the murder had happened. And Jeffrey 
is clearly in control during the sex act. He is in a dominant role and he continues to call Joey a little bitch boy like throughout the act. So it was intended to show that not only was Jeffrey- Why do people ever film themselves having sex? I do not know. No one wants to see it. No. I I mean, I think people do it because they are turned on by it. They want to see themselves have sex, you know? But yeah, I don't think when they filmed this, they thought like an entire courtroom of people, investigators, you know, like nice 65-year-old woman on the jury would be watching this. So it was supposed to show that Jeffrey was not afraid of Joey and that Jeffrey was actually in control of the relationship, which I mean... I don't think like what you do in bed is indicative of who really is in charge in a relationship all the time. No, but if it's right after they killed someone. Yeah, and he certainly didn't seem scared or like he couldn't be in control of Joey. Also, I just cannot stop thinking about the people who ended up doing their civic duty of performing jury duty. That they're like going to do a time-honored American tradition for our justice system. And they think that they are there to, you know, help. And they have to watch a hardcore amateur gay porno (laughs) as part of their civic duty. Oh my God. And I have to say, guys, like this is not, I said gay, but I'm like any type of sex I don't want to see. I don't want to see two murderers on meth having sex. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter who it is. I don't care if it's a man and a woman, two women, two men. I don't want to see it. Don't want to see it. So next on the stand was Joey. And there was a lot of drama about getting Joey to the stand. Apparently, he did not like the deal he worked out with the prosecutors. He didn't seem to think it was fair. He thought that there was some language, I think either in his deal or in um, Jeff's deal that did not preclude Jeff from lying or something. Like he like believed that Jeff got a deal and was just lying and that the prosecutors were allowing it essentially. And he was so angry about this that he refused to testify, even though he had made a deal to testify to get the death penalty taken off the table. So when they first bring him in to testify, they're like, so you're here to testify today and like, raise your hand. And he's like, nope. And just like sits, they brought him from prison to testify. And he's like, no, I will not, not testifying. And they're like, uh, oh, okay. Well, that screws our day up. So they had to like, I don't know what they worked out, but eventually he changed his mind because he did actually end up testifying against his lover. Yeah, they're probably like, your death penalty will go back on the table, sir. Yeah, exactly. We'll have a resentencing hearing. Get your ass up on that stand. It's really interesting. David Domine, the author, talks about it. And you can kind of see it on the first 48. He had some sort of feelings for Jeffrey still, definitely. Because when Jeffrey was on the stand testifying against Joey at Joey's trial, he was very studiously not looking at Joey. Like he was testifying, he was looking straight ahead. He's looking at the prosecutor who's asking him questions. He seemed to be like purposely avoiding looking at Joey. Of course, yeah. Versus when Joey was up there, David Domine said that like when he walked by him, he was like, hi, Jeffrey. And then like stared at him while he was on the stand. But in a way where you couldn't tell like, is it longingly? Is it love? Is he still into him? Or does he hate him? You know? Yeah, is that thin line between love and hate, y'all. I mean, it was 
almost indecipherable. Like, are you obsessed with him because you're still in love with him? Are you obsessed with him because he sets you up for murder? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he reiterated his version of events claiming that he once thought that Jeffrey's motive for the murder was robbing because he said that that night Jeffrey had spent two grand on four eight balls of crystal meth. Wow. Four eight balls. Remember he went back to the... So each eight ball is $500? I guess so. Quick math there. The math award this episode goes to you. Yeah, he said that they had sent him back to the hotel and like, I guess like Jamie was super fucked up coming back because he had been using the drugs as well. And he had a hard time like finding the house on his return, which is why the guys had like this gap in which maybe they planned to murder. At first, Joey was like, well, you know, I think that, you know, he had talked about getting his money back because obviously he would get that $2,000 back if he robbed him. But he said that after being in jail and reflecting on the crime some more, he thought that Jeffrey was actually jealous of Jamie and their connection. And the fact that they were like the primary people who communicated with one another. And that is why he killed him. On cross, Jeffrey's attorneys basically just tried to discredit Joey and make him look bad by questioning him about his previous arrests, about his spotty employment history. And the fact that I guess some people interviewed who knew Joey who had been sexual partners of his had claimed that Joey had not revealed his HIV positive status until after they had actually had sex. Um, what? Yeah. So they were like, he's a liar who does very dangerous things to people and clearly doesn't have any care for other people's health or safety. Yeah. The defense called a former coworker of Jeffrey's who claimed that he had been a model employee until he began dating Joey, presumably doing drugs then, and that after meeting Joey, his performance at work and attendance suffered so greatly that Jeff was actually fired by the University of Louisville. So they were they brought that witness in to show that he had been great until Joey came into his life. Also called by the defense was a friendly acquaintance of both men who claimed that Joey was scary and that he had once witnessed Joey assaulting Jeffrey when he had been visiting the men. Also, a former coworker of Joey's testified that he frequently threatened people with guns and knives when they were in arguments. In closing, the defense argued that by showing the sex tape and entering into evidence proof of Jeffrey's kinks, The prosecution was essentially slut shaming when in fact, Jeffrey was a victim of domestic abuse. The prosecution closed with a plea for the jury to not let Jeffrey Muntfree just because Joey Bannis was potentially a worse person. Prosecutor Ryan Conroy said, Munt is an arrogant, cocky person who thought he would get away with it. They were a team. They were a unit. With less than eight hours of deliberation, the jury had a verdict. Jeffrey Munt was found. What do you think? Hopefully they're both guilty. Not guilty of murder. Guys, I wish you could see Eddie's face right now. She's actually speechless. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. He was found not guilty of murder, not guilty of criminal facilitation of murder, and not guilty of robbery in the first degree. But he was, however, found guilty of criminal facilitation to robbery in the first degree and tampering with physical evidence. 
which leads me to believe, like, basically, neither side was completely happy. Like, the defense is like, if he's innocent, he's innocent, just make him innocent. And the prosecution is like, okay, if he's guilty, guys, just make him guilty. So why are you splitting hairs? My feeling with what they were charging him with, with the robbery, the criminal facilitation to robbery, and the tampering with physical evidence was that they obviously kept Jamie's money afterwards and the drugs, whatever he had on him. So I think that the jury was trying to say, we believe that he did benefit from this robbery and he did tamper with evidence insofar as, you know, helping him cover up the murder, but he did not intend to rob or murder. And that was on Joey. That was like my feeling. What do you think? I don't know. I think money talks. He had a lot more money. Joey's family had money though. And he had a really good criminal background. They were trying to like prosecute him from the beginning first because he was an easier target, quote unquote. Yeah. So Jeffrey received five years for the facilitation to commit robbery charge and three years for the evidence tampering. So a total of eight years. However, Jeffrey made parole only one year after the trial. With time served, he ended up only doing four years total, half of his sentence. Joey continues to proclaim his innocence to this day and is still appealing his conviction so far unsuccessfully. If you have somehow listened to this podcast and thought, oh man, that Joey sounds like a dreamboat, I'd really like to hook up with him, you can have your chance. You can contact Joey through Write a Prisoner. Wow! So yes, if you're interested, Joseph Bannis is number 261780 on Write a Prisoner, and his profile says... Hello, my name is Joey. I am a lonely gay man who is seeking pen pals and true friends. I am six feet tall, 160 pounds, with several interesting tattoos, which comprise a cohesive aesthetic image. Which I, I don't know. There are a lot of Grateful Dead tattoos, so I'm not sure about that one. I have a swimmer's build. Interesting, because that's Jeffrey was a swimmer. And I am 46 years old, although I look at least 10 years older. This was his current active profile, and I know he's like 50 or pushing 50, so already a liar. I enjoy fine wines, philosophy, theater, electronic dance music, travel, fashion, and literature. At one point in my life, I was a hippie traveling with the Grateful Dead. And then when I became comfortable with my sexuality, I evolved into a raver and involved myself in the nightclub and music event production business. I have designed and owned my own nightclub and also was a semi-pro snow skier. I am currently incarcerated for a crime which I did not commit, and my case is under appeal at this time. You may ask me anything, and I will answer your questions. I am seeking genuine people who are interested in developing true friendship. I am a genuine, interesting, intelligent, eclectic, and gentle guy with integrity, and I want to make friends outside of prison. You will be surprised if you give me a chance and get to know me, and I look forward to getting to know you as well. I really just want to make friends and have connections to the outside world. I hope to hear from you soon. And thank you for your interest. Yours truly, Joey. He is not looking for prayer partners, though. You have to click that one. He said, no, thank you. Nothing. Yeah. So the David Domine book, A Dark Room in Glitterball City, is really interesting. And it's a really well-written book. I do recommend it. But I just want to be clear with you guys. It is not a traditional true crime book in any sense, in the way that we usually use the true crime books in this podcast. It's more like a love letter to all of these interesting offbeat personas of old Louisville. 
Um, it really brings like old Louisville to life and it has all these quirky characters in it that might be forgotten or ignored by mainstream society. And he really gives them a spotlight as he connects everything to the murder. He does a, a lot of trial coverage. He was there for every single day of the trial. And it's also part memoir. Like he inserts himself in the story and you hear, you know, parts of his life as well, which it, it comes across great. I mean, he he seems very intelligent, very likable. It's a pleasurable read. And he also talks about how he toured the murder house with his partner, both before the murder of Jamie Carroll and after, and truly considered buying it. And in fact, Jeffrey Munt like passed him as they were leaving the appointment and he was the end, ended up being the one who bought it. Whoa. Yeah. So he has a very personal connection to this case. And it sounds like, yeah, it it sounds like that they um, decided not to buy it, obviously, the first time. And they left it kind of vague about if they decided to buy it the second time. I'm going to like write to him and see if we can like interview him for the show because I want all of the dirty deeds. Yeah. And if you're interested also, guys, in more of like the supernatural aspects, he has written a lot of books about Louisville, especially about like haunted past of Louisville. So maybe I'll send him an email and see if he wants to be on the show at all. If I didn't butcher this episode too terribly. But yeah, so it's a really good book. I do recommend it. Just be aware. It's like a very different, very interesting experience reading it. And I did look it up. Somebody did buy the murder house in 2012. And they completely completely gutted it. Yes. But I, I saw some of the new pictures. Like if you look up on like the Zillow, it's still like the creepy old pictures, like from after the murder. And it looks like they were living in a total like state of disrepair. It looked like, I don't know where the home projects had gone to because the place was a mess and the Zillow still looks really bad. But then I found an article which I'll post in the notes, guys, because I can't think of who it was by at the at this point. It was like by a local Kentucky news site. But they showed the before and afters. And it's nicer for sure. There's still something creepy and menacing about the house, though. Yeah, because it's fucking haunted. Would you live in a haunted house? No. I wouldn't either. I don't even know how much I believe in all of that, but I would not not do it. No. I would not. I sage the shit out of every house I move into. And yeah. definitely, like, pick up on weird vibes. So... Yeah. So, I mean, I would not. There's lots of lingering questions, though, still, like what really happened that night? And during that fight in June of 2010 that precipitated Joey spilling the beans, what happened that night as well? And so I don't know about the fight, but my theory about the murder, given that and I don't know about the hogtide, if they did that to the body later, just to make it easier to carry I think it was sexual play that went very awry. I mean, if there's four eight balls of meth being consumed and you're getting really hopped up and it's like you've been having sex for a really long time, like there's only like so far in fantasy world you can go. Like you just keep like being like, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did this? And seeing as Jeffrey talked about how they did have some of these sexual conversations about killing and it was part of their, you know, sexual role-playing repertoire, I I think it was a joint effort of sex that went very, very wrong. Like maybe there had been like a little knife play and somebody just snapped, you know? 
He didn't have that in his profile, though. I feel like he was pretty extensive and thorough. <laughs> he was pretty extensive. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. He didn't. So that's my best guess. But that is just speculation, my friends. Just throwing the spaghetti against the wall. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Jeffrey, I have no idea where he is. He is free. He's out. I couldn't find any details about where he was located. But there were rumors reported in David Domine's book that he potentially planned to change his name and move to Europe. He spoke several languages, apparently, as well. Well, what do you think? <laughs> do you think he did it or do you think Joey did it? Or do you think it doesn't matter? I don't think it. I mean... There were so many drugs. I find it so unbelievable that they didn't prosecute both of them. I mean, they prosecuted both of them. They only convicted one of them. I find it so hard that they didn't convict convict both both of them. them. I I agree with you. I was aghast that he was not convicted. But But I think money, 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 money. I would tell as usual to agree with you, Andrea. So I hope you guys enjoyed this spooky Valentine's Day story of love gone fatally wrong. In conclusion, I don't know, guys. Find out the history of the house you're going to buy. There's been multiple people murdered there, exorcisms, maybe satanic cults performing in the basement, maybe move on to the next fixer-upper. Yeah, we've got enough research that we can figure out online now. You should do a quick Google search. Yeah, and don't believe those realtors, like that sneaky no. one in American horror story, you know? She's They're gonna sneaky. sugarcoat it. <laughs> also, I'd like to state for the record that drugs are bad. Drugs are very bad. Do They're not bad. do drugs. Don't do that many drugs. Yeah. Never. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love or real estate so no one ends up murdered. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.